0: Hi, welcome to Hollywood Crime Scene. This is Rachel Fisher. Hi, this is Desi Jenikin. Let's start out by thanking our Patreon contributors from this past week. They donated over at patreon.com slash Hollywood Crime Scene. And this week we had Jennifer, Laura, Tiffany, Ann, Dave, Fiona, Rosemary, Lisa, Tristan, Wallace, Lady LaCrimal. Taishira, Karen, Alana, Deanne, Carly, Candy, Selena, Chase, Luis, and Jose, and Jennifer. Thanks, guys.
1: Thank you. So, we're back for part two of Billie Holiday, and I just wanted to re up my sources on this episode. We I used uh, Stuart Nicholson's biography, Billie Holiday, and her autobiography, Lady Sings the Blues. So, Last week, we ended in the mid-40s. Billie Holiday is hooked on heroin now, while at the same time, she is entering what many consider to be her peak performing years. In September of 1943, Life magazine wrote about her. She has the most distinct style of any popular vocalist and is often imitated by other vocalists. So she's really becoming a huge influence as well. Mitt Gabler, who at this time was an A&R guy for Decca Records, which is a huge uh, record label, signs Billie Holiday on August 7th, 1944, when she is 29 years old. Now, by this point in her career, a song called Lover Man was a regular part of her set, but she had never recorded it. So that would be her first Decca recording. This song would be one of her biggest hits. Uh, it would be number 16 on the pop charts, which is like definitely a crossover uh, material. The success and distribution of the song made her a staple in the pop community and led to a lot of solo concerts, which were rare for jazz singers in the late uh, or the mid to late 1940s. He said about Billy, I made Billy a real pop singer. That was right in her. Billy loved these songs. So I think I mentioned in the first episode that she was very finicky about what songs she had, but when she got a producer who kind of pushed her, she would have these great moments because she really had a a bigger range than she thought. So Mm -hmm. she just needed someone to kind of have confidence in her. Now, when she uh, went to record this song, she really asked for strings. She wanted to have strings on this recording, which was popular in arrangements for artists like Frank Sinatra and Ella Fitzgerald. She says, I went on my knees to him. I didn't want to do it with an ordinary six piece. I begged Milton, told him I had to have strings behind me. Just a very cute, desire of hers in my opinion. So when they went to record the song, she entered the studio and according to Toots Camarada, who was the musical director and arranger for the session, she came into the studio, turned around and walked right out. I went after her and asked her what was wrong. She said, oh man, these strings hit me pretty hard. So just seeing the strings there for this recording session was like this great moment for her. Now, by the end of 1944, her ex husband, James Monroe, was arrested again for smuggling marijuana. I mean, I say ex husband, they're technically still married, they're just not together. Mm-hmm. So this time, Billy did not give a fuck. She was over James because she had another man. I mean, that's kind of how Billy got over these guys that were sort of treating her like shit. This guy was a trumpet player named Joe Guy. Now, he not only was her lover, but he was also her new supplier. They began living together, and Joe began getting her drugs and then would charge a fee on top of the drugs so he'd be making a profit over what he got for her. So men just like took advantage of her.
0: (laughs) Uh, Look, I've been in a situation like this before, and all I'm going to say is it does not end well. (laughs)
1: Is that a common thing where someone it's like a finder's fee? Well, look, I I mean they were according to the books I'm, I read, not, they were so over the top that even Billy had to know, know she was getting screwed, but just kind of let it slide. I wouldn't say there was a finder's fee. All I'm <laughs> saying is don't get involved with your drug dealer. Yes. So in 1945, she does have several successful um, performances on the West Coast. She begins telling friends that she is officially divorced from Monroe and has married Joe Guy. That turned out to be not true. A lot of these relationships are very confusing because she'll claim to be married to someone, and but technically she's still married to um, Jimmy mm-hmm. Monroe, and it's just like, uh confusing so i always take a grain of salt with whatever her relationship status is you'll you'll think she married someone and then you'll find out like two chapters later that she finally got divorced right from the guy like <laughs> you're like oh wait so i guess you weren't technically married to right. this guy uh yeah so I thought this passage was pretty interesting. Um, So she is in LA for a while doing these performances and she gets very sick on her trip back to New York. In her autobiography, she says this is the first time she experienced withdrawal symptoms. Now in this other book that I read, the Nicholson book, they go on to kind of talk about how the, 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 the difference between addiction and withdrawal, like you can have a withdrawal symptom, even if you're not addicted. Like I had that when I was hospitalized, I was on morphine and I got really sick when I got taken off of morphine, even in a sort of controlled environment. So this guy talks about, and I'll see if you think this is true, that it's sort of like a thing where at some point when an addict realizes their sickness is related to them not doing drugs, now they have two reasons to do drugs, like the euphoria or the fun aspect of it and to make them not get sick. Well, yes, that's true. So, so he thinks at this point that that sort of escalated her drug use because now she's like, well, I can't be sick. I have to uh, take more drugs to not get sick. Yeah, because the person who's
0: look in my own experience, the person, if you're not an, an addict or an alcoholic, uh, once you withdraw from the drugs physically, yeah, that's it. Yeah, you don't need to do them again. But uh, an addict. And an alcoholic in a sober state of mind is not a good place to be.
1: Right. So I mentioned on the last show her addiction was kind of a secret, but now it's definitely becoming very well known. She's regularly missing gigs. She's showing up out of it. And she's being described more and more often as moody. Joe Guy is also an addict, and he's blowing his opportunities. Very similar to Billy, who is definitely more advanced in her career than he is. But he had a major gig playing trumpet with sax legend Coleman Hawkins. He failed up. He failed to show up to a gig, and a young guy who had just moved to New York filled in for him. That guy was Miles Davis, and this gig launched his career. Basically, so he kind of missed out on this opportunity. I mean, Miles Davis would have been famous no matter what. Yeah, <laughs> it definitely <laughs> sucks. <laughs> So Joe convinces Billy to start a big band with him, and she basically foots the bill for this. They set a tour up. I mean, this is a disaster from the get-go. At this point, big band was sort of not as hot as it once was. It's very expensive to create a tour. You have to hire a lot of musicians. Yeah. You have to book all these gigs. Dude, just lugging all those tubes around or whatever. Yeah, it's expensive. So if if it's not as in demand, it's kind of like a bust from the start. Also, leading the band is two huge drug addicts. Like, they're doing all of the booking, <laughs> <laughs> like, doing everything. Yeah. At this point, music is not their thing that they're devoted to. It's heroin. Right. So, they're missing engagements, bailing on contracts. And when they bail on a contract, they have to, like, pay the club. Like, right. So, they're underwater pretty quick. It's a fucking mess, this tour. I- I'm sure that they didn't even realize it. They're just, like, going through and fucking up and I'm sure everyone working for them is like what the fuck (laughs) (laughs) so on October 6, 1945 Billy and Joe come back from a gig and Billy feels something inside of her she says to Joe that her mother has died wow he brushes it off and the next morning they find out that it was true Billy is obviously devastated her mother had suffered a stroke a week earlier and died that day that she felt that She's very young, by the way. She's only in her early forties. The uh, mother, the mother, yeah. So, despite their up and down relationship, they had a real bond. And for the rest of Billy's life, especially when she was wasted, which was a lot, she would often choke back tears sometimes and say, oh. "Duchess is gone." Like oh. so, it just always kind of stayed with her this yeah. loss. Many who knew her said she never recovered. And if anything, it made things much worse because she now relied even more on her romantic relationships to have that kind of support. And she had really bad taste in men. So she was always very vulnerable to abuse and exploitation because, I mean, she obviously has some psychological issues and dealing with relationships and intimacy, and then her addiction also made her vulnerable because people could use that against her Mm -hmm. um, or get her in states where she wasn't with it and get her to sign things, and that happens a lot. So she also claims to have entered a two-year depression after her mother died, which only increased her drinking and drug use. Of course, she had been uh, using drugs for a while and had been addicted for a while, but sometimes... And sometimes in the books, like she, you know, she gets investigated and a lot of that happens that she'll say that her mother's death um, was what caused her to increase her addiction. But I feel like a lot of people speculate that she kind of used that because she wanted some sympathy, but she wasn't getting sympathy. Like, so I don't really care why she's feeling it. I feel like she wanted to find a reason why it's not just that I'm a drug addict, it's because my mom died. Right. And I feel like that's probably a common thing. And I feel like that's a common thing with anything. It's like, give me some sympathy and I'm going to find a reason why you finally fucking help me. Right. Uh, So it's just really uh, sad. During 1945, she becomes the highest paid jazz performer in New York City. She did in that big band tour finally at a loss and was performing regularly at a club called the Downbeat Club, where she was earning um, about $1,000 a week. But due to her drug habits and the bad men, she was always broke and still continuing to borrow money, even at this high salary. People who would see her at this point, especially those who hadn't seen her in a few years, would be shocked by the change in her look and her personality. By this point, Loverboy was a massive hit and had really elevated her to the next level fame outside of the jazz world. She had massive, um, critically praised concerts at this time at the Apollo and Carnegie Hall. So all of this stuff is coming together. (laughs) She's like literally in the worst Point personally that she, you know, she'll get worse, but like it's just a weird culmination of highs and lows. At this point, Hollywood also comes calling, so she finally gets cast in a movie in September of 1946. She begins her only major film role in a movie called New Orleans, which is basically about the history or the beginnings of jazz. Um, It stars Louis Armstrong, Woody Herman, but the film is troubled from the start. The first thing that kind of happened, and this is really funny in her autobiography is she thought she'd be playing herself because she does record a ton of songs for this film. So she thought she would be playing some version of Billy Holiday. Um, when she arrives on set, she finds out that she's playing a maid, which outrages her in the book. She says, because she had said early on in her life that she would never be a maid, period. Right. Meaning like what her mom did. But to play this maid in the movie, she had a lot of like political opinions about this too that were just dead on. So uh, there's a funny story of her not being able to sell a line like the director kept making her say. And the line is literally along the line, lines of like, yes, Miss Rachel. And she like refused to say it. And the director was like, just say it. Jesus. <laughs> yeah. And it was just like totally like that stereotypical bullshit that Hollywood did back then. She wasn't having it. Other problems on the set? Now, as I mentioned uh, before, this was kind of about the history of jazz. The creators of this movie are named Jules Levy and Herbert Bieberman, and they're sort of classic Jewish, liberal, Hollywood, whatever. So they're doing this movie really wanting to kind of credit black people for inventing jazz, you know, like the truth. Yeah, <laughs> But people... This is also where um, the McCarthyism had started. Yes. So it came they were like really being pressured to not credit black people with this invention, like and they were being threatened. Wow. Like, we'll turn you in as you know, fucking communist, because this is communist behavior <laughs> to think of civil rights or whatever, anything like right. that. So they really got pressured by this. Um and they started sort of changing things and like downplaying the original uh, intent with the movie the original script like the original script was just completely changed the cut of the movie a lot of this stuff was cut out and they focused on other things uh i mean the movie just ended up being a fucking disaster now ironically bieberman did all of this for nothing because he was later one of the hollywood ten and sent to jail Really? Yeah, so, I mean, even people who were trying to kind of kowtow to these demands still would end up getting fucking screwed over. Now, several, a lot of stuff is deleted from this movie. They took a lot of footage, Holiday said, and none of her was left in the picture. Like, she's like, there was like nothing. She said, I know I wore a white dress for a number I did, and that was cut from the picture too. Another problem on the set was Billy's addiction uh, was really... Not great. In fact, her stupid boyfriend Joe basically came to California to be on set and hand her to, to supply her with drugs. Wow! So her manager, a man named Joe Glaser, got him out of there finally. Um, but he couldn't really cover for her at that point. She was showing up late. She could never, she didn't find the discipline she needed to be like in a movie, which is a lot of sitting around and boring shit and like whatever. She just didn't have it in her to do this. So she basically, Hollywood doesn't put up with this shit like a jazz club might. <laughs> so she kind of was like, no one wanted to work with her again after this. Even though this movie was a bust, her behavior was also sort of a bust. And people were like, nope, next. Um, now, by the late 1940s, people were becoming more critical of her style as well because she was kind of in a rut and she she um, was really only focusing on these slow, sentimental ballads, which obviously she did great. But people were kind of like, yeah, it's, it's wearing a little thin. I mean, it's been great up until now, but at some point, it's like, change it up. Another person criticized a concert where it was like there was a little variation in melody and no change in tempo. So she started to get... I think this is all related to her addiction, obviously, because she felt comfortable. uh, And I'm sure it was scary to change things up during these shows. She's probably just thinking, like, how can I get through it? Mm -hmm. Um, But people are starting to notice. She's also showing up to performances and recording sessions and really producing these lackluster vocals and unusable takes while recording. Like, she kind of managed to get away with it for a while, but now it's starting to crumble on her a bit. Uh, And all of this is happening while she is the most popular jazz singer in the country. Like she's constantly winning all of these, you know, whatever polls they have in Downbeat Magazine and Billboard has like polls of girl singers. She's always like number one or number two. Her primary source of income, the Downbeat Club, eventually closes down, and now she's in big trouble uh, financially. Her manager, Joe Glaser, finally confronts her about her drug use and gives her an ultimatum. So in May of 1947, she enters a treatment facility. After six weeks, she leaves the hospital, cured but her life on the outside has not changed at all so she's basically getting off of drugs and just coming right back to the same situation including Joe Guy who is an addict and still using heroin so she's very quickly back on heroin herself cuz she lives with the guy right now another aspect of this time that i thought was i thought was kind of interesting along with the mccarthy stuff you have this co evil entity uh that's an early version of the war on drugs. So a major figure in this is a guy named Harry Anslinger. He was the head of the Treasury Department's Federal Bureau of Narcotics, which I'm guessing is kind of an early version of the DEA. Um, So this is a predominant leader of the government, and one of their main goals is to stifle the black jazz community, in particular Billie Holiday. Now, President Truman at this time is doing these things to kind of advance civil rights for black Americans. But the Democratic Party at that time is still that Dixiecrat, you know, red state who are kind of like racist Democrats, basically, at that time. They're really against all of these kind of civil rights legislation. This is kind of around the time when this party's kind of split or they, they change. Now, Ainslinger despises jag, jazz and all his, his all of the, the famous jazz players, which is such a like dork ass dick (laughs) like who is this fucking nerd like mind your business he hates jazz music he what is this footloose yeah it's totally footloose and he like pals around with some pretty notorious figures like joe mccarthy roy Cohn, who also hate the jazz community i mean they all it's like it's so obvious like it's like, yeah, you guys all want to suppress blacks and Jews, basically. Like, it's like getting the communists. It's all people who were kind of left wing or whatever, and a lot of Jewish people in Hollywood. I'm telling were that.
0: You, I'm telling you, around this time they doxed my grandpa in the newspaper. They fucking printed his address.
1: Yeah, so, I mean, the government's doing this shit to these groups because they see it as, like, whatever. A threat to American values. Yeah, so it's super fucking conservative and weird. Now, on May 16th, 1947, agents set up a stakeout in a Philadelphia hotel where Billy and her group are staying while she performs in a nearby club. She has a hunch something's going down when her driver pulls up and... Front of the hotel and she sees agents kind of swarming the lobby. She's like immediately like, get the fuck out of here. Like in her book, it's kind of funny. She's like, There's something really stressful when you're really urgent about getting the fuck out of here. And your driver was kind of like, What? They like didn't get the sense of urgency. I was like, Yeah, you want someone who like knows immediately. Right. Like, let's get the fuck out of here. No questions asked. Because he's like, What do you mean? And she's like, No, go. Now these guys are swarming around the um, lobby. Agents eventually get her room number. And this is uh, a quote from the agent. In the company of the lady who was seated at the desk, I proceeded to room seven. The door of the room is open and I see two men that she's with in are packing suitcases. They give me permission to search the room. I look under the bed and find a package. The package was wrapped in a lady stocking. Inside was a spoon, two hypodermic needles, one eyedropper, 16 capsules of narcotics, and nine and a half empty capsules. Later, chemical examination proved that the capsules contained heroin hydrochloride. So her chauffeur is taking her back to New York now. When they arrive at uh, the Grampian Hotel where... uh, she goes to do drugs. (laughs) The cops find them there and basically arrest them or take them in for questioning. So Holiday is taken in for questioning and she kind of admits the heroin was hers. She's quickly arrested for possession of narcotics. Now, This is basically what that the new movie is based on, is kind of this period and, and this trial. On May 10, 27th, she's in court. She says in her autobiography, it was called The United States of America versus Billie Holiday, and that's just what it felt like. She said during the trial that she heard her lawyer would not be coming to the trial to represent her. In plain English, that meant no one in the world was interested in looking out for me, she said. She basically signed away her rights to have an attorney when she confessed all of this stuff. And she had zero representation during the trial. Now, she's also going through withdrawal symptoms at this point. So she's dehydrated. She's vomiting. uh, She's fucking like barely able to stand. Look, opiate withdrawal is no joke. Yeah. So this is what she's going to court under this sort of circumstance. No
0: one's taking care of her, taking her to a hospital. No. At this
1: point, she pleads guilty just to get admitted to a hospital.
0: Oh my God.
1: So meanwhile, fucking Joe Guy pleads not guilty and they have zero evidence (laughs) leaking them to this cocaine or heroin. Like they have, they're basically, she just admits to it and that's why she gets busted. He doesn't admit to shit and gets off uh, scot-free. Now in her book, uh, I thought she had a really interesting passage about this. She says, I felt like the fool of all time. People on drugs are sick sick people. So now we end up with the government chasing sick people like they were criminals, telling doctors they can't help them, prosecuting them because they had some stuff without paying the tax and sending them to jail. Imagine if the government chased sick people with diabetes, put a tax on insulin, drove it into the black market, told doctors they couldn't treat them, and then caught them, prosecuted them for not paying their taxes, and then sent them to jail. If we did that, everyone would know we were crazy, yet we do practically the same thing every day in the week to sick people hooked on drugs. The jail are the jails are full and the problem is getting worse every day. And that's exactly how it is right now. Like Th- that's I mean she nailed it. That's exactly right. So the district attorney actually speaks in her defense because she has no legal representation. He says, if your honor, please, this is the case of a drug addict, but more serious, however, than most of our cases. Miss Holiday is a professional professional entertainer and among the higher rank as far as income was concerned. So it's kind of like, I don't know, giving her, trying to make it more like, hey, this is a famous person. Like right. I don't know. Giving her a pass. Yeah. Uh, she gets sentenced to Alderson Federal Prison Camp in West Virginia. She gets a year sentence. And the judge, I want to highlight this judge because he's a real piece of shit. During the sentence, he, like she will get help when she goes to prison, but he wants to he wants to make a point that she's going there as a criminal, not as a sick person Ugh. who is getting help. Like he makes a point of letting her know that you're a criminal. It's disgusting. It's really disgusting. Mm-hmm. Visit BetterHelp.com slash HCS today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P pcom slash H-C-S. So I think the scene is portrayed in the movie. She has a, a bad detox uh, experience when she's in prison. She does eventually get clean and has a relatively okay experience in prison. She uh, goes on to say that it was better than Welfare Island, like back in the day when she went to prison as a kid. She is released on March 16th, 1948. She gets out because of good behavior a little early. When she arrives at Newark, her friend, a pianist named Bobby Tucker, and her dog, Mister, were waiting for her. The dog leaped at holiday so intensely it knocked her to the ground. Uh, she said, he began laughing me and loving me like crazy. A woman thought the dog was attacking her, she screamed and a crowd gathered and reporters arrived. So then Billy said, I might as well just have a wheeled into Penn Station and to have a quiet little get together with the Associated Press, the United Press and the International News Service. So, so much for her quiet homecoming because all of uh, New York knew about this incident now. So when she's uh, released, of course, everyone in her life was immediately putting her back to work. A comeback concert was planned at Carnegie Hall. Holiday initially was unsure about this. She didn't know if audiences would accept her after her arrest and her addiction, you know, all that news about her addiction coming out. She eventually gives in and agrees to appear. At the end of March 1948, she plays Carnegie Hall to a sold-out crowd, which is 2,700 tickets that were sold in advance, a record time for the venue at, at that point. Her popularity was... um It was unusual just because she hadn't had a hit record for a while. The last one was Lover Man in 1945. But she sang 32 songs that night, including a lot of her classics, Strange Fruit, uh, amongst others. During the show, she received a box of gardenias, like at a, a sort of break in the show. She said, my old trademark, I took them out of a box and fastened them right to the side of my head without even looking twice. There was a hat pin in the gardenias and she unknowingly stuck it in the side of her head when she put it on. She said, I didn't feel anything until the blood started rushing down in my eyes and ears. She actually, after a third curtain call passed out, like the experience (gasps) was so overwhelming emotionally, but then I don't know how much blood she lost. I don't think it was enough to make her faint, but she literally gave her all for this performance. On April 27th, 1948, a Broadway show was arranged for her titled Holiday on Broadway, which also sold out and had a limited three-week run. The drug possession conviction caused her to lose her New York City cabaret card, which prevented her from working anywhere that sold alcohol. This is another bullshit uh, thing that people were doing to kind of fuck over Black artists during this period. She performed in concert venues and theaters, but she could uh, only do clubs or bars and restaurants in other cities. These performances post prison were all smash successes and a lot of it was people who were curious to see what she was but they I mean if they came not a fan they left a fan because she was great. She had now taken on um her persona used to be unlucky in love and now it was kind of unlucky in life like she kind of expanded <laughs> right expanded that genre but her love life was still unlucky. Don't 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 get Don't get crazy here. She was back on drugs. She finally ditches Joe Guy when she begins hooking up with a club owner. He owned a club called Club Ebony. His name is John Levy, and he quickly took over Billy's finances. This guy is a real piece of shit, like just a fucking like treated everyone like shit, not just her friends literally watched in disbelief as he took her for all her money. Like they like could not stop it. She, he would even use her drug cravings to get what he wanted by manipulating her and saying he wouldn't give her money. Uh, so she was really dependent on him. He took complete advantage of that dependence and just demolished her self-worth and her bank account. After a new year's Eve performance in LA in the early hours of January 1st, 1949, Billy told Levy a fan had gotten fresh with her, which led to an episode of explosive rage on his part. He took a knife. They were kind of in a backstage area that was also the kitchen. He picked up a butcher knife, went to stab the molester. Another person got in the way of the stabbing, and he ended up stag- stabbing this person who stumbled onto stage with a knife sticking <gasps> out of him. <laughs> like literally that thing happened. Oh, <laughs> oh my Now God. this turned into a real... Melee, (laughs) yeah. Uh, Because everyone was wasted, Billy was throwing pots of pans around in the kitchen. Uh, Shit was getting wild. Police showed up and basically arrested everyone. Now she gets out on bail and goes up to San Francisco for an engagement at Cafe Society, and more trouble followed her up there. She was arrested again on January twenty second, nineteen forty nine, in her hotel at the um, hotel room at the Hotel Mark Twain in San Francisco. This time, luckily, she did have legal counsel and uh, was adamant that she had been framed. Honestly, I believe her. Yeah. I think these fucking cops are framing people. A trial date is set, and Billy tries to get clean before it starts so she can pass any drug test that might happen. But this whole thing sent her into another period of depression. She later said that she had been suicidal at the time and sought psychiatric treatment based on the advice of her dear friend, Tallulah Bankhead, oh. who she called Lady Peel. No idea why, but that sounds kind of hot. I love Tallulah. Now, well, now, <laughs> one advocate that she had at this time was Tallulah Bank- Bankhead, who actually came from a very privileged, rich family. Her dad was sort of an influential politician and fucking rich guy. She wrote several letters to J. Edgar Hoover at the time trying to get Billy pardoned and like these charges dropped uh, from from whatever. He claimed there was nothing he could do since it was a state issue, uh, et cetera. But she did make an effort and sent several letters. Now, they were supposedly having a sexual relationship during this period, or off and on for years, I'll get more into that a bit later. But that was—they were supposedly pretty close at this. I think they were close at this time. Wow. I'm, 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 both people admit to that. Now the detox worked, and she did pass this drug test in early June of 1949, and was found not guilty. This whole thing seemed insane to me because I was like, "Why do you give someone four months to pass a dr- <laughs> drug test?" I mean, I'm glad they did, but it was like, "Well, obviously you can get like detoxed." enough to pass it eventually but whatever she passes and they're like i guess she doesn't have a heroin problem at some point during all of this her and john levy have supposedly gotten married but by 1950 after he asked her or he cleared out her bank account because he had too many gambling problems uh she finally leaves him unfortunately she's really back on heroin at this time and in the upcoming years it gets bad her voice becomes completely shot it's rapidly deteriorating, um, although she still will have moments of greatness ahead. That's just something, a new thing she's starting to struggle with. Now it's getting harder and harder for clubs to book her because she has become very unreliable. And not only that, when she shows up now, police presence is heavier because they are basically stalking her. Yeah. And they're like, oh, a drug addict's here. Let's see what's going down. Gross. So clubs don't want to like deal with it. They right. like don't want cops in their business because they're probably doing illegal shit too. Now, in 1951, things began looking up for Billy because she c- becomes reacquainted with the man I mentioned in the first episode, Lewis McKay, who is played by Billy D. Williams in the movie. He only agrees to get back in her life if she gets clean, and she does it. Her performances become more professional. She's showing up on time, and although her voice is markedly different now, uh, she's killing it, so much so that even reviewers are kind of commenting on her turnaround. By 1952, she is primarily in LA to avoid those um, problems she was having in New York City, and she begins recording with legendary producer Norman um, Granz, who has who founded Verve Records, amongst others, and that's like the biggest jazz label. He really pushes her. Out of her rut at this point, gets her to do songs she is not comfortable with. So much so that when she does it, she's actually so happy because she's like, "I did it!" Like yeah. it's such a great feeling. So I think she really needed that confidence boost. Lewis McKay is keeping the drug pushers away. Like uh, I, 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 I saw mixed things about him. Like some people say he's abusive. He's also described as a mob enforcer, um, but he kind of comes off pretty good in these two books that I read. In 1951, she agrees to appear on a TV program called Comeback. She would finally have the opportunity to tell her side of the story, warts and all. And you can finally watch this on YouTube. It's available now for the first time, uh, this program. It's kind of like... this is your life type thing. There's other interviews. People come on who know her. There's clips from throughout her life. There's pictures of her as a kid. Like It's pretty great. She finally also fulfills another lifelong dream of hers, doing a European tour. And this is a whole rigmarole too, because she doesn't have a passport. She has trouble with her arrest record, but it finally comes together. The tour is beyond her expectations. The audience Audiences are literally in tears watching this jazz legend perform. Like they're so appreciative of her talent. This was obviously a real boost to her spirits as well. Like she just had the best time. Um, But part of her solution for staying off of heroin was drinking a lot more. Uh, So she her alcohol problem got worse as her heroin problem got sort of better. Um, And alcoholism off also started interfering with her performances. Um, That being said, she did have an amazing performance at the Newport Jazz Festival in 1954. At this performance, she is joined on stage throughout the performance by people who worked with her at different stages in her career. The audience went fucking nuts over this because it's like, Teddy Wilson, like like from like the 1930s on, all of these people she recorded with. Most poignant, however, was when Lester Young walked out on stage. The two had fallen out because of her heroin use, so this reunion was obviously very special, and the audience gave a standing ovation. Just seeing them together and knowing that the feud was finally over was a great moment at this show. Now, she toured a lot that year, And was kind of making peace with her deteriorating voice, finding ways to use it effectively. And although her chops were shot, she had lost a lot of her upper register in particular. The emotional aspect of her performances was deeper than ever. And that just really is its own thing. Like, I love her later recordings personally, but they definitely were controversial at the time. So she was kind of earning money at this point. Louis McKay began using that money to dabble in real estate and he always put things in his name. So it was definitely kind of like, ah, uh, you get <laughs> nervous hearing that with Billy. Cause you're like, no. Right. But, uh, I mean, he seemed okay. It was McKay who convinced Billy to write an autobiography uh, he kind of was always pushing her to do these different money making endeavors, but she fucking needed money. So I mean, good. She had gotten to know a New York Times uh, a New York Post reporter named William Dufty, and he agreed to help her write it. Now, in 1955, Charlie Parker died of an overdose, and this really was a shock, like a shock wave within the jazz community because they're all doing a lot of drugs. Um, but he's. Obviously, such a huge name. It was, he's, I think it was in his early 30s when this happened, and it really devastated the jazz community. His death led to a lot of reflection amongst the community who wanted to get clean. A lot of them wanted to get clean now. Billy did not really have that self reflection. Uh, Her drug use, as I said, had lessened, but she um, was on the road a lot up. And She would get home and drink, but when she was on the road, she would do, start doing heroin here and there. In the book, they described it as being a chipper. Have you heard of that? Uh-uh. A chipper is someone who occasionally uses heroin, like not an addict, I guess, or not a constant user. Right, but she's... Sub, sub, I mean, she's, she's not... She's doing... She's full-blown alcoholic, too. Well, basically, she's coming home with Lu- to be with Lewis, and she's like, I just drink. Right. <laughs> but right. on the road, she will partake a little bit. Uh, Her use, though, obviously starts escalating. Of course. So, uh, yeah. After Parker's death, more people than ever were really trying to help her. In February of 1956, she was once again busted for drugs while staying in a Philadelphia hotel, this time with her husband, Louis McKay. And it looks like he was using as well. Wow. So police found drug paraphernalia as well as heroin and cocaine. The couple were apparently doing speedballs. Lewis said they were framed, but both of them tested positive for drugs or whatever, were both on drugs. I don't know what this incident is because there's no other incident in any of these books where he does drugs again in this kind of way. So maybe they were framed. I have no idea, but I thought it was kind of wild. Um, She once again enters a treatment facility, but pretty much bails after a few days because she has some performing engagements. Lewis at this time buys stakes in a Chicago club and plan has plans to kind of make a showcase room where she'll perform exclusively. And Billy goes off to Vegas to like do some club dates there. In August of 1956, Lady Sings the Blues is published. Uh, this book is written by having a series of conversations with Billy Holiday. He also has like interviews with other people because she. Does not have the best memory of these things. She's been a drug user since she was a child. The New York Post writer who's. Yes. So he has to find like information from other people who knew her throughout these years, uh, which is like, I don't know. That probably happens a lot actually because people can't remember everything that happens. Now, I thought this was pretty funny and I don't really know where to throw it. So I'm throwing it here. (laughs) In her. She said her inspiration for the memoir was a line she she heard or read from a 1930s actress who said this is how she wanted to start her memoir. I would love to know who this actress is because this memoir sounds good if it ever got published. And the opening line for this actress was, people say I'm an alcoholic, a dope addict, a nympho, and a kleptomaniac. Well, it's all true. Who is this person? I need them like in my life. Like I need to know who that was. So if you know who that was, write us an email. Great first line. Now, a man named John Zweed wrote a book about her autobiography called Billie Holiday, The Musician and the Myth. And he says that although there are some things that are inaccurate, it's basically an accurate account of her life because people have questioned some of the veracity of this book. Um, the, the real problem here is that Dufty, the writer, was forced to water down or suppress material because of legal action that was threatened by some big celebrities, including Charles Lawton and Tallulah Bankhead. Uh, one of the other people, I don't think he sued, but she had to tone it down, uh, was Orson Welles as well. But I told you that they were pretty close. Uh, so I don't think that mattered. Now she wrote a pretty mean letter to to Lula Bankhead, and I'm oh. going to read it to you. So she said, "Dear Miss Bankhead." I thought I was a friend of yours. That's why there's nothing in my book that was unfriendly to you, unkind, or libelous. Because I didn't want to drag you, I tried six times last month to talk to you on the damn phone and tell you about the book just as a matter of courtesy. That bitch you have who impersonates you (laughs) kept telling me to call back. And when I did, it was the same deal until I gave up. "'But while I was working out of town, "'you didn't mind talking to Doubleday "'and suggesting behind my damn back "'that I had flipped and or made up "'those little mentions of you in my book.'" She goes on to talk about some people I don't know what the incident is, so I'm gonna skip it. "'There are plenty of others who remember "'how you carried on, so you almost got me fired "'out of that place, and you wanna get shitty? "'We can make it big, shitty party. "'We can all get funky together.'" I don't know whether you've got one of those damn lawyers telling you what to do or not, but I'm writing this to give you a chance to answer back quick and apologize to me and to Doubleday. Read my book over again. I understand they sent you a duplicate manuscript. There's, some, there's nothing in it to hurt you. If you think so, let's talk about it like I wanted to last month. It's going to press right now, so there is no time for monkeying around. Straighten up and fly right, Banky. Nobody's <laughs> trying to drag you. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Now, I think Tallulah was getting pressured for being a lesbian. Yes. And she really started distancing herself from Billie Holiday, probably because she was a little erratic in her behavior at that time because she was addicted to heroin. So they kind of fell out. And I think Tallulah really felt threatened that something would be revealed in this book. And I guess probably threatened her to not put anything in. And Charles Lawton as well. So... I think the sort of dishonest parts in this book are because of these lawsuits that were threatened where she couldn't be 100% honest about mm-hmm. things that happened to her in her life. So, I mean, I'm not really, like, coming down on Tallulah because I definitely get at that time you could not be gay and, right. like, working in movies probably. So... Yeah, pretty interesting, though. I do think they had an affair. And Natasha Leone, by the way, plays her in the perfect. movie. Yeah, perfect. <laughs> so to accompany her autobiography, she released an LP called Lady Sings the Blue that was kind of like a combo, like a companion piece to the book. And it was pretty well received. Uh, she got great reviews. Her people commented on her voice sounding great. In the fall of 1956, she had another successful Carnegie Hall engagement that was recorded and um, was created into an album. Now, the liner notes on this were written by a man named Gilbert Milstein, who worked at the New York Times at, at the time, and he gave it a pretty uh, great review. He also did the narr like this concert had narration to it, so he used narr- he used um, passages from her book. And then she would sing a song, so it was like one of those type of shows, which sounds so fucking amazing. so he literally started it started the show with the first lines of her book, which are "Mom and Pop were just a couple of kids when they got married. He was eighteen, she was sixteen, and I was three, uh, and ended very nearly shyly with the with her hope for love and a long life with my man at her side. Like that was how the book ended. It was evident even then that Miss holiday was ill. I had known her casually over the years and I was shocked at her physical weakness. Her rehearsal had been desultory. Her voice sounded tinny and trailed off. Her body sagged tiredly. But I will not forget the metamorphosis that night. The lights went down, the musicians began to play, and the narration began. Miss Holliday stepped from between the curtains into the white spotlight awaiting her, wearing a white evening gown and white gardenias in her black hair. She was erect and beautiful, poised and smiling. And when the first section of narration ended, she sang with strength undiminished, with all of the art that was hers. I was very much moved, and in the darkness, my face burned and my eyes as well. I recall only one thing. I was smiling. Now, another critic named Nat Hentoff, who worked at Downbeat Magazine, he also attended this Carnegie Hall concert. And he wrote of her performance, throughout the night, Billy was in superior form to what had sometimes been the case in the last years of her life. Not only was there assurance of phrasing and intonation, but there was an outgoing warmth, a palpable eagerness to reach and touch the audience. And there was a mocking wit, a smile was often lightly evident on her lips and her eyes as if for once she could accept the fact that there were people who dug her. So, I mean, she just had this great experience. And like, finally, I think it was hard for her to realize that the audience really loved her. Uh, And it seems like she kind of got that in this performance. Um, He also called her the greatest jazz singer alive. In 1956, uh, her ex John Levy dies. I think it was December of 1956. And in the early months of 1957, with drug charges still pending, she marries um, McKay because they wanted to ensure that they wouldn't have to testify against each other. So I think she was married to Levy (laughs) because they were able to get married right away. They also met a lawyer named Earl Zadens, who they trusted with Billy's career. Now, the performance I mentioned on the last show, the one with Lester and Billy, where they last performed together, also happens around this time. That is on a program called The Sound of Jazz. Um, The performance is a song called Fine and Mellow, which is one of her uh, classic uh, songs. And I think it's just a beautiful performance. Her face is just very joyful watching his um, big solo. Nat Hentoff, the same guy I mentioned earlier, was one of the producers on the show. And he commented that when Lester got up and played the purest blues I had ever heard, everyone was crying in the control room. Uh, now in June of 1957, Lewis McKay found out that Zayden's, the lawyer, had been supplying Holiday with cash. So she was fully hooked on heroin again, because that was something he expressly forbade, for, forbade this guy to do. Like, don't give her fucking money. Like, and everything had to go through him. So, she was desperate at this point when he found out because he always said that he would leave her if she ever became a heroin addict again. She she kind of admits to it all. She also say, says that her and Zayden's had participated in some sexual activity in order for her to get this money. She then also claims that Zayden's had tried to sodomize her. So obviously McKay is like fucking enraged I mean, he's mad at Billy, but he's also mad at this fucking guy that they let into their life. He confronts this guy. Uh, I don't think he kicks his ass, but it's pretty (laughs) scary because this guy eventually runs off and calls the police. Um, They try to press charges against him, but Billy refuses to press charges, so there's nothing they can do. McKay, at this point, drives to Chicago to escape all of this. While in Chicago, he gets hospitalized for a bleeding ulcer and nearly dies. He's hospitalized for weeks, but refuses to go back to Billy until she's clean again. Now, she actually makes Zadens her manager and caretaker at this point. he's just doesn't know what he's doing. He's not hes not a music business guy, uh, and he doesn't really care. He's incompetent. Uh, it was Zadens who signed off on the album Lady in Satin, which is a very controversial album because she's so clearly in trouble while recording this album. And so people, I think, listened to it and were like, it's it's kind of haunting. Yeah. like She definitely sounds like someone who is in the need of help. Um, at the same time, for some people, it has become one of her greatest achievements because although her voice is definitely shot in it, It's one of her most emotional recordings ever. In fact, one of the people who were on, like a a producer on the album said, after we finished the album, I went into the control room and listened to all the takes. I must admit I was unhappy with her performance, but I was just listening musically instead of emotionally. It wasn't until I heard the final mix a few weeks later that I realized how great her performance was. This album is also named one of Rolling Stone's all time best five hundred albums, so the appreciation for it is still out there. I definitely think it's just something some people find hard to listen to. Right, but it is its own thing. I listened to it today, um, and I I enjoyed it. I think I think the reality is my first experience with Billie Holiday were these later recordings. So I was more shocked when I heard the earlier ones because mm-hmm. <laughs> I was like, oh wow, uh, I I heard the end. So. With McKay gone, she moves into a sad little apartment and struggles to make ends meet. It's the beginning of the end for her. Her health really starts falling apart. And around the same time, her best friend, Lester Young, who was also ravaged by alcoholism and late stage syphilis, dies. That happens in March of 1959 and is obviously a huge blow to Billy. Now, she goes to his funeral, which was an emotional event. She thought she was going to be singing there, but Lester's widow and his family were there. Uh, His kids were really young, but they were kind of described in this biography as being a little classy, and they didn't really like Lester's jazz affiliations. So when all these jazz musicians showed up, the family was kind of like, no. Now, she really wanted to sing, but was told that they weren't going to let her sing, so some of the other musician friends who were there, they kind of all bonded together and they really felt bad for Billy. Uh, she said to her friends inside the church, those motherfuckers won't let me sing for Prez. They took her out in front of the place and just kind of calmed her down and then went to a bar and had a couple of drinks. And she was still saying in the bar, they won't let me sing, they won't let me sing. It was really sad. And obviously that would have probably been like a, a crazy... <laughs> amazing emotional performance from her. According to jazz critic Leonard Feather, who rode with Holiday to the um, funeral and back, she said after the services, I'll be the next one to go. And four months later, that was true. Now in early 1959, she was diagnosed with cirrhosis. Although she had stopped drinking on her doctor's orders, it was not long before she started drinking again. By May of 1959, she had lost 20 pounds. Her manager, Joe Glaser, the jazz critic Leonard Feather, and several other people were really trying in vain to get her to go to the hospital and seek help. On May 31st, 1959, she basically collapses and she finally is taken to the hospital. She's kind of suffering from liver disease, heart disease. I mean, everything is just breaking down on her. Now, she's initially not accepted into the hospital because in those days, hospitals would refuse to take in addicts. And she had track marks down her arms and like she reeked of alcohol. So when they brought her in, the hospital was like, "Uh, no. Luckily, her manager, Joe Glaser, who I think they had had a falling out at this point, he comes in and he's like, I'll pay all of her bills Uh, you know, you can count on that. So they took her in eventually and started treating her on June 11th. A nurse found white powder in a Kleenex box beside Billy's bed. She reported it to the doctor and the following morning, the police arrived and sealed off her room. They fingerprinted her, took mug shots and took away her comic books, her record player and her records. Their petition threatened to take her to the women's house of detention regardless of any consequences to her health unless she cooperated by admitting possession and disclosing who her supplier was. No one was allowed to enter her room unless it was um, a permit from the twenty three 23rd precincts allowing entrance, entrance to the room of Eleanor McKay, arrest number 1660. So she's in hospital and they're basically fucking giving her mugshots and taking fingerprints. She's under arrest in the hospital. That's so gross. On July 10th, the doctors allowed Billy to finally receive gifts of candy and ice cream and fruit, but not salty foods. Just as she appeared to be rallying, she went into relapse. Throughout Wednesday and well into Thursday night, Lewis McCade was by her side. He leaves at 2.40 a.m. to phone his mother. Half an hour later, Billy Holiday died. Now, her illness was originally diagnosed as a liver ailment brought on through excessive alcohol consumption, which had been complicated by cardiac failure. After her liver responded to treatment, a dangerous kidney infection developed. Before this could be controlled, she developed congestion in her lungs. According to her manager, it's a result of a concoction of everything she's done in the last 20 years. She began drinking heavily to try to beat the narcotics habit and neglected her health. In the end, Billie Holiday's medical records mirrored the story of her life, a series of complications beset by further complications. She was just 44 years old. In her final year, she had been progressively swindled out of all of her earnings and she died with 70 cents in the bank. Oh, it's my just God. like broke. Now, another thing that's sort of like complicated music stuff, she didn't have like residuals because none of her stuff was re released ever during her lifetime. So she didn't even get like that kind of income mm. in. Gilbert Milstein of the New York Times, who was the announcer I mentioned earlier at Carnegie Hall concert, uh, he had this to say about her death. Billie Holiday died in Metropolitan Hospital, New York, on Friday, July 17th, 1959, in the bed in which she had been arrested for illegal possession of narcotics a little more than a month before as she lay mortally ill, in the room from which a police guard had been removed by court order only a few hours before her death, which, like her life, was disorderly and pitiful. She had been strikingly beautiful, but she was wasted physically to a small, grotesque character of herself. The worms of every excess, drugs were only one, had eaten her. The likelihood exists that among the last thoughts of this sentimental, profane, generous, and greatly talented woman of 44 was the belief that she was to be arraigned the following morning. She would have been eventually, although possibly not that quickly. In any case, she chose to remove herself finally from the jurisdiction of any court." When Holiday died, the New York Times published a short obituary on page 15 without a byline. So, wow. I mean, that's insane. They just
0: didn't give her any dignity. No, at all.
1: Uh, I mean, as with many artists who don't get their due while they're alive, her legacy is obviously eternal. She did get a lot of that. Stuff that you know, those are missing. Yeah, posthumously, she was nominated for twenty three Grammys. She's in the jazz and Grammy halls of fame, but obviously, just a devastating loss to think about. Also, what could have been? Like, right. there were so many missed opportunities for her because she couldn't get help. Right, and that's just sad to think that the fucking government was after her all of these last years, and even her final moments. They were fucking trying to arrest her in right. the hospital bed, right? For what? Having fucking powder, like, right? I mean, it's for just... for being ill, yeah. For being ill, like, what? Are, what are you doing?
0: Right. Like, it's it's so grotesque and so it's just disgusting.
1: Even if I, like, I can't even think. Like, can't you just wait? Like, seriously, what's going to happen? Just take right. the fucking drugs and like right. leave. Like, right. Nothing's the, happening here. Right. But what are you going to do? Like, it's so infuriating to me um, to, to like, realize how Well, it's awful. like they had to demoralize her one last time. Yeah. And it's like, for what purpose? Just to be an evil piece of shit. Right. Like, there really was no purpose to it. Awful. But, yeah. So, that's the story <laughs> of Billy well, Holiday. I'm, like,
0: almost in tears right now. That was really good, Desi. <laughs> I was. I mean, I really... There was so much detail about her life I just had no idea about. I mean, I knew the...
1: I think you know. it's always sad, kind of like with Judy Garland, to realize how much they just never got the help they needed. Right. And people just, or just the society at the time, really treated alcoholics and drug addicts like fucking criminals. Yeah. I mean, it still does. It, it still does. It's like, but there's like a little more awareness, but it's so much further we need to go. Oh my God. And I think when you see it in an extreme case like this, it makes you realize it's just so heartbreaking, too, to hear her know. But that's what was happening. She's basically being treated like a criminal when she needs help. Right. Uh, and then when she tries to get help, it's like people still like Judy, it's like, no, you gotta go work. You're right. supporting all these people. And yep. it's just like they don't have a chance. They I think. want their money. Yeah. So well, that's that was that. a
0: great episode, Duzzy. Great um conclusion in our part two series. Yeah. So um,
1: watch the movie. I didn't get a chance to watch it. I wanted to but it is on Hulu. Yeah, it looks great. It does look good. Uh, so I'm definitely going to try to check that out this week. Absolutely, and I recommend doing the same. I recommend her biography too, or autobiography. It is really good, and yeah. I I love reading it in her voice. Yeah, she's funny and dark, which I relate to. Yeah, <laughs> I do. I do want to say, like sometimes when I'm laughing, that is my nature <laughs> as an abuse survivor. Like yeah. <laughs> I get her where she's coming from, and it's like yeah. some people laugh at it that shit because it is darkly humorous sometimes when you're out of it but I feel like uh she would appreciate that we get get her on that level oh yeah because her book is very funny and she's just like over it with everyone yeah Uh, so I love her yeah I mean we'll post some
0: pictures of Billy on our Instagram oh yeah we'll post some more pictures of her um and someone's from uh, her later career as well. So look out for those on Instagram, Hollywood Crime Scene. That's our Instagram handle. Yeah. You can find us there. And we will see you on Friday for our mini episode. Bye. Bye.